song, I'm going to ask you first to turn to your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, that was missed earlier in our service. Sometimes those things happen, you know? So Galatians 6, I'm going to actually going to read that. Um, I'm not going to talk about it in the sermon, but I want you to think about what Paul is saying in Galatians 6. Especially as we look at the passage, verses uh, 6 through uh, six through 10, Paul is talking about we reap what we sow. And when we get to Nehemiah 9, you'll notice that that's exactly the sentiment they have in Nehemiah 9 in the confession of sin, the profession that they make in Nehemiah 9. So out of reverence for God's Word, please join me in standing as we read, first off, Nehemiah, uh, Galatians 6, verses 6 through um, 10. Be nice if I was in Galatians. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And now turn to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9. We're going to actually do the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to walk us through it very quickly. Nehemiah 9, starting at verse 1. This is coming hot on the hills of Nehemiah, hills of Nehemiah 8, which I'll get into in the sermon, but... It's good for us to remember that this is not. Uh, this has a context. The context is chapter eight. So now, chapter nine, verse one. Now, on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the month is the seventh month. The twenty-fourth day of the seventh month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of Yahweh their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of, of it, they made confession and worshipped Yahweh their God. And on the stairs of the Levites, so up high above everybody, stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani, and they cried with a loud voice to Yahweh their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Stand up and bless Yahweh your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And starting at verse 6 comes a confession of sin, what I'm going to call a profession. You'll understand why later. And they go through and they begin rehearsing God's goodness and their grittiness, if you want to put it that way. So as they get done rehearsing, as they're rehearsing God's goodness, down at verse 16, they own their own sin. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. And then in verse 20, 
You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And they go on rehearsing their own uh, forebears' disobedience uh, and how God rightly should have abandoned them and could have abandoned them. And then comes verse 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your Spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. And then comes part of their prayer. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we acted wickedly. And they go on confessing their sin. And then comes verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document on the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. All that I've read to you from the New Testament and the Old Testament, and even that which I summarized to you, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we acknowledge that we have, we have no way, no way to obligate you to us. Just look at us. We don't deserve even your smallest kindnesses. And this past week has made it clear that we are bumbling sinners, braggadocious transgressors, faith-breaking trespassers. But tonight, may we hear and feel your nevertheless. Amen. You may be seated. So I'll be working my way all the way through Nehemiah 9. If you keep your Bibles open there, there's sermon notes on the back of the worship guide for you. Lots of space to write notes. I'm sure you've seen it. A husband or a wife wrongs their spouse. Maybe they committed adultery. Maybe it was. Uh, uh, maybe they hit rock bottom in their drug use. They went back to drugs or their alcohol and decimated the family in some way. Maybe it was financial dishonesty that uh, impoverished their family. Somehow they they wronged their spouse, and you. You'll see it, and then you'll notice that they'll weep crocodile tears. I mean, big old tears. Just boo-hoo, I did wrong, and I'm sorry about all the mess I made. And somewhere in all of the boo-hooing and the crocodile tears, they will suddenly turn. Maybe it won't be that day, maybe it'll be the next week or the week after, but somewhere they'll turn, and they begin to making demands on their spouse. Or maybe they begin to blame their mate for all their troubles, or sometimes both. And if you were a fly on a wall, as a fly on the wall, watching all of this unfold, you'd be scratching your head at the utter mess, at the sheer irrationality of it all, and the harmfulness of the situation. My friends, what we're about to see in Nehemiah 9 is the polar opposite of that. The polar opposite. It actually shows us a better way. So here we're going to look at real preparation, Real preparation, right profession, right profession, and resigned petition. There's the three points. 
face a real preparation, right profession, and resigned petition. And so verses 1 through 5, the real preparation. The seventh month is still moving along, and God's people have just finished. The end of chapter 8, verse 13 to the end, they have just finished celebrating the Feast of Booths, Succoth. They've spent, that means, they've spent seven days in booths that they made to remind them of the wilderness wandering, to recall the time that their forebears spent in the wilderness and to put themselves in their forebearers' moccasins, so to speak. That's why they're in those booths. They're actually participating then in that wilderness wandering. Remembering that the 40 years in the wilderness was because of what? Why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness? Was it God could not bring them to the promised land? No, God brought them to the promised land, Numbers 13. And they came out of that breaking faith. No, no, we can't take them. Those are Amalekites. Why? We're grasshoppers in their sight. You remember the story? It was only Caleb and Joshua that said, we can do this because God said He would do it. And they broke faith. No, let's get a new leader and go back to Egypt. It was much better in slavery back there where we had leeks and cucumbers to eat. I always find that statement pretty funny. Right? They broke faith. And so the 40 years in the wilderness were because of their forebears breaking faith with God. And these Israelites just spent seven days reliving that and remembering that their time in the wilderness was their own fault. And yet, they also remember that in that time when they did not deserve goodness, God was good to them. God's persistent fidelity sustained them, guided them, and bolstered them. You even heard it in the prayer. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out. They still had food and water, and they shouldn't have. They spent seven whole days remembering that whole story. Now here it is, three or four days later after Succoth. It's on the 24th of the month. There's no holy days at this point in, in the seventh month. It's done. And yet the people want more. After all they've gone through since the first day of the month to, to the celebration of Succoth and remembering their own failures and God's faithfulness, they want more. And so what do they do? They want more of God's Word. They want more of who God is. They want more of God in their life. So, they get into real preparation. Real preparation for me. First off, notice that they assembled with humble and contrite hearts. They assembled ready to tremble at the Word of the Lord. So, verse, verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting, and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Everything that said, we're sinners and God is right in what He's about to do, what He says of us, we want more. So they're ready to tremble even at God's Word. So they're contrite and humble, ready to tremble at God's Word. And that's exactly what God talks about in Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Then secondly, they pulled away. Notice they pulled away from the distracting influences of their compromising pagan neighbors. Verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. 
it wasn't just that they, they didn't want anything to do with these pagans. They were still going to end up working with them. They're still going to meet them in a marketplace. It's not that they're becoming like Amish out in Pennsylvania off in their own little commune. It's that for this worship and for hearing God's Word, they prepare themselves by separating themselves, pulling themselves away momentarily from their pagan compromised neighbors. Next, they attend to the reading and the hearing of, God, of the Word of God with diligence and participation. It's verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of Yahweh their God for a quarter of the day. It's about three hours, maybe from nine to noon. For another quarter of the hour of the day, they made confession and they worshiped their God. Further, they gave attention to the clerical agents, the preaching Levites, who had already expounded to them God's word uh, some three weeks before. In fact, if you go through this list of names in verse 4 and 5 and go back to chapter 8 where they're mentioned there, you'll notice lots of overlap. There's lots of these men who were there at the beginning of the month preaching and there's some new names. But that's what you have. You have these clerical agents who have been teaching them and preaching the word to them. On the stairs of the Levites, remember they're up high so they can speak over the crowd so their voices and words flow over the crowd. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, and the rest of these folks, and they cried with a loud voice to Yahweh their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, etc., said, Stand up and bless Yahweh your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Much of these beginning verses in chapter 9 feel like they're just a continuation of all the events of chapter 8. If you go back and look, you realize there's lots of similarity because it is a continuation. It's like a month-long revival. A huge month-long camp meeting, right? Something like that. That's what it feels like. And so, notice that there's clear reading of Scripture. They want the word read and hear it as being read and they're reading it up high so that way it can be read clearly. They're hearing it expounded again. Uh, so there's clear reading of, of Scripture that's being exposited from an elevated position. There's participatory prayers. People are being drawn into the prayers. There's an eagerness to hear God's Word and so forth. All of it fits. It flows out of chapter 8. They also, though, at this point, begin spending time confessing their sins. And we're going to see a real example, an in-depth example of, the sin, of how they did their confession of sin when we get down to verse 6 to the end of the chapter. It's actually a written example of what they actually spent a quarter of a day doing. Okay, I assume that they, it was either written out or there was a secretary, scribe, sitting around transcribing what was said so that way we would have verbatim what was prayed, the confession of sin. But we'll get to that in a moment. The emphasis here in the first five verses is that they engaged in real preparation. They prepared to worship. They prepared to hear God's Word. They prepared to own their sins and not shuffle them off on someone else. They prepared to draw near to the Lord. It was real preparation. Once more, we see in a sense an illustration of exactly what the Westminster Shorter Catechism urges on us. That the Word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with preparation, with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts. 
practice it in our lives. My friends, as we contemplate our own weekly gatherings, our assemblies, we are well instructed by this passage. Maybe worship feels flat and flaccid to us. One remedy, one remedy, is to actually spend time in real preparation. Some examples, some some suggestions. For example, pulling away from the compromising pagan influences to get ready for worship. Not to cut everybody off so you don't evangelize it, but but just preparing yourself by pulling away from those those, uh, compromising pagan influences like maybe computer games for a season. Maybe TV, maybe sports, maybe business, maybe investments, maybe news. Pulling away from those for just a season, a short season, to prepare to worship, to free up our hearts and to free up our heads to get into the game, so to speak. Maybe another way to prepare is to begin reflecting on the past week's failings and our need to humble ourselves before the Lord to enter into the assembly with such willingness and eagerness. Now, here's another suggestion. To enter into the assembly with such eagerness and willingness that we're not harnessed or hampered by our watches or the clock on the wall or the clock on your phone, your cell phone, right? So, for example, maybe pushing the family meal, you know, after church, maybe pushing it out like an hour after church is done, supposed to be done, So you're not in a hurry to rush right out, being ready to say, you know, we'll stay as long as we need to, to hear from the Lord. Does that make sense? Being prepared, not allowing ourselves to be hampered or hounded by our clocks. It might even be a good thing to do. To uh, to take Westminster Shorter Catechism number 90, number 990, and turn it into a prayer. Something like this. Lord, we yearn for Your Word to be effectual and effective in our salvation. Therefore, so rouse our hearts and heads, our bodies and brains, to attend to Your Word and worship with diligence, preparation, and prayer. To happily happily receive Your Word with faith and love, even if my toes are getting stepped on. To lay Your Word up in my heart with meditation and memorization. To let it have its effect on the way I live. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto You. Amen. Maybe taking Shorter Catechism number 90 and turning it into a Saturday evening prayer as you begin preparing for Sunday morning and Sunday worship. Real preparation. So, with this real preparation to hear and receive God's Word, they then move to right profession. And this is, starts at verse 6, specifically verses 6-31, through 31, even though the last part of the chapter is still part of their profession. Re, right profession, right profession. Since they are hearing hours of God's Word, probably three hours of God's Word of the book of the law of Yahweh their God, as they hear it for hours being read and explained, it seems then that the Word of the Lord, the law of God, is the fuel that fires up their profession. I think Dean Ulrich sees the rationale here very clearly. Dean Ulrich was the Old Testament professor 
uh, he's a PCA pastor, but he was the Old Testament professor at the Episcopal School where I went to get my doctorate, Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry. He wrote a book on Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, and I think this is in your sermon notes. I think this quotation is in your sermon notes. If it's not, shame on me. Oh, good, I got a thumbs up. Here's how Dean Ulrich, uh, I think he, he sees the rationale clearly. Quote, the Jews had been humbled by what they heard, and this prayer juxtaposes the twin themes that stood out. God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness. Not to be missed is that hearing the law of God in verses 1-5 through five prompted the post-exilic listeners to take action in the form of speaking, confessing, and doing, repenting. God's law did not just condemn, it offered hope. The God who gave the law for sanctification and mission for His people also promised to overcome the failures of His people and give them a future. End of quotation. I love that statement. The law gave the hope that fires the engines of change. I think that's why the Westminster, our Westminster Confession of Faith puts the things the way it does, is it happily declares that the three uses of the law, remember the three uses, what are they? They drive us to Christ, the law drives us to Christ, it's a social curb, right, it helps us to be able to be good citizens, and it shows us what sanctification looks like. The three uses of the law, here's how the Confession puts it, that the three uses of the law, excuse me, the three uses of the law are not, quote, contrary, not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. Why am I bringing that up? Because there are some in our stream that want to rip law and gospel apart and say, well, that's law, it only condemns, but we want to go to gospel. But then when you realize, here are these people listening to the law, and they hear gospel pulsing through the law, it gives them hope to change. The two are not adversarial, law and gospel. The gospel actually, the three, excuse me, the three uses of the law do sweetly comply with the grace of the gospel. What a great statement in our confession. That's chapter 19, paragraph 7, if you want to look it up. Chapter Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 7. And that's, my friends, as we work through this right profession, I'm calling it profession because they're professing their failures and they're professing God's fidelity. I think it was the right word to use here. They're professing their failures and God's fidelity. So as we work through this right profession, it falls out into three overarching themes. And you might want to write these down. The whole profession falls out into the themes of God's story, God's story, God's right, God's faithfulness. God's story, God's right, God's faithfulness. So just walk through verses 6 through 31, and it is clear that first off, they are rehearsing God's story, beginning with His very being. So I hope you have your Bibles open. We're just going to run right through chapter 9, 6 through 31, very quickly. Notice it begins with God's being. You are Yahweh, you alone, already monotheism, right? God is alone. Is Yahweh alone is God. There is no other. That's where this starts. It moves on to creation in the next part of the verse. 
You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. It moves on to providence. And you preserve them. They keep going on to proclaim His worthiness. And the host of heaven worships you. And then it starts, they start walking through God's history beginning with Abram, then through the Exodus, then through Mount Sinai, then the wilderness wandering, and then the time from Joshua, the conquest, all the way through the kings. So they're covering all the books from Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, off into the exile to be second kings and many of the prophets onto the present. They therefore are rehearsing God's story. It's a good thing to do. Remembering who He is and what He has done is really important. And so as they rehearse God's story, they recall God's right. What do I mean by God's right? God's right to judge. God's right to judge their multi-generational, repetitive faith break. All the way through this, this right profession, they recall, God, You are right to have judged our forebears and us. Because we were wrong. God's right. That's very kind of countercultural in 21st century America, right? God is right to judge. All the way through, notice that they never, ever, ever shift the blame. They don't do like Adam and Eve did. Remember Adam? Well, you know, the woman you put in the garden with me, this woman right here, she, right? Shifting the blame. They don't shift the blame like Eve did. Well, you know, the serpent that's in the garden, you know, you put the serpent there. Right? That's shifting the blame. They don't shift the blame like King Saul did. Right? King Saul was notorious for shifting the blame. They don't shift the blame like sometimes you and I do. Well, if you hadn't have been such a mean old you-know-what, then I wouldn't have done that. Right? They didn't shift the blame. They own their own sin. God, You are right to judge. They owned their personal sins all the way back through their ancestry. Let me run through again, primarily focusing on verse 16, 17, 18, and then 26 through 27. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. By the way, if you have arthritis in your neck like I do, you can appreciate that statement. Stiffened neck, right? Stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. That's funny. We're not mindful of the wonders. They were numb to the greatness and grace of God. How often do we do that kind of stuff, right? They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their, to their slavery in Egypt. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and, and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, etc. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. You killed your prophets who had warned them to order in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies and made them suffer. God, you are right. We're wrong. You are right. And you have a right to judge us. 
They owned their sin and didn't shift the blame. Declared God's right to judge. Therefore, woven into God's right to discipline them for faith breaking comes out God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Faithful to himself, faithful to do justly, but surprise of surprise, faithful to bring mercy despite what was deserved. So just listen, I'm just going to read through. If it's hard for you to follow along, because I'm going to hit a bunch of passages, a bunch of verses through here. But as we go along, just listen and let God's faithfulness to his undeserved mercy wash over you as I recount it. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you made a name for yourself as it is this day. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And in the time of their suffering, they cried to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. You saved them from the hand of their enemies. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. And then comes the punch and the pow. Those of you who remember the old 1960s Batman shows, right? Remember this? Pow, right? Here comes the punch and the pow, and it's in verse 31. I do want you to see. After rehearsing all these things, then. They confess, nevertheless, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Nevertheless, oh, God's nevertheless, we deserved all of this, and rightly you judged us, nevertheless. Less. God's nevertheless. That nevertheless shows up in the New Testament. Not literally. But it's in Ephesians. You know Ephesians. I'm sure Ephesians 2 especially, right? We're good Calvinists. We love to quote chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. See, Aubrey, that means total depravity. You know what I mean? Right? So we love to talk about that. And as you go on and listen to the description, oh, we were slaves to the this prince of the power of the air. We were slaves to our own sinful natures, and we deserved wrath naturally by because of our fall. We hear all that in verses one through three, and then all of a sudden comes verse four. But God, you hear the nevertheless. We deserve it, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God's nevertheless. My friends, God's nevertheless lifts our hopes and hearts. All of these details, all the way through this profession, this right profession, are the very things that they heard from the law of God which gave them hope. 
hope that fires the engines of change. Because not only did the law's loud thunder rumble from the top of Mount Sinai, but they also heard, the Lord, the Lord, a great, a merciful and, and, and gracious, full of long suffering and so forth. Right? They heard all of that in the law. It gave them hope. It reminded them of God's nevertheless. And it began by turning the ignition key of right profession. When you finally get caught up in God's nevertheless, then you can own your sin and do something about it. This God of the nevertheless is the God you can actually entrust yourself to because you know He will be faithful and merciful despite what we deserve. This God of the nevertheless is a God you can actually bear your soul to and quit making excuses to because you know He's the God of the nevertheless. This God of the nevertheless is a God that you can honestly lay out your sinful failures before. You can lay out your anger before. You can lay out your lusts before. You can lay out your greed before. Knowing that He's the God of the nevertheless who is merciful and gracious despite what we deserve. This God of the nevertheless, of the nevertheless, is a God whose integrity, His integrity beckons us to humbly own our sins as our sins and not to shift the blame onto any other. God's mercy, God's nevertheless, His multi-generational faithfulness to mercy fuels the engine of change, which is what you begin seeing happening here in Nehemiah 9. Oh, friends, remember God's nevertheless. Which brings that forth from these humble, contrite lovers of God who tremble at God's word, brings forth from them a resigned petition. A resigned petition. It's verses 32 through 38. By resigned, I mean it's not very ambitious. I don't mean they quit. I mean, it's just resigned. They just didn't, they weren't very ambitious in their request. Their request is not a request of, oh Lord, remove all troubles from us. Oh Lord, remove all grief from us. Oh Lord, remove all these enemies from us. Oh Lord, make us stinking rich. Oh Lord, make us potent and powerful. Oh Lord, make us great again. It was not an ambitious prayer. It's a resigned petition. It's a simple Broken pride, broken ambition kind of prayer. You see it there in verse 32 and 33. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. They spent all this time and they're going to spend more time saying, you are faithful and we are faithless. We, don't, we cannot obligate you to us. So it's a resigned petition. Just don't. Don't let us, our situation, disappear from your memory. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that, was, that has come upon us. Their confession of sin continues as they bemoan their present servitude. Verse 33, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Accurately understanding their predicament and their predilections, and their undeserved, I'm sorry, and their deserved penury, poverty. They know that they have no right 
to demand anything. And so they come with a resigned petition. Please, don't let our plight be lost. We trust you because you are of utmost trustworthiness. You're the God of the nevertheless. My friends, this is the same kind of resigned petition that we often do and we must and we will at the end of the service sing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. It's the same kind of resigned petition. I don't deserve any of this. And I need you. I'm not saying that there are not times to bring our biggest prayers to our big God. Remember when Wes used to say, we need to pray for 12 new conversions and 12 baptisms, and everybody, we all just kind of went, that's a great idea. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing to do, and I hope we're still doing that. I'm doing it. I want us to keep doing it. There's nothing wrong with us bringing our biggest prayers to our big God. What I'm saying is that our circumstances often dictate. And sometimes our circumstances dictate a resigned petition. There are just seasons when because of our own failings, our own faults, our own faith-breaking, that we're in a serious predicament. There are just times when there's nothing left, there's no resilience, no rousing resistance, no ambition, no petrol left in our system. And so maybe the best we can stir up, and maybe the best we should want to stir up, is a resigned petition. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Please, don't let our plight be lost. We trust you because you are of utmost trustworthiness. That resigned petition says, I believe you are the God of the nevertheless. All I can do is just say, help me. We trust you will do the best. You will do it right. So my friends, All of this moves them then to add muscle actions to their contrition, and that's in verse 38, which is actually the summarization of what's going to unfold in chapter 10, which I'm going to leave for our next time when we get together in a couple of weeks. There you go. As they come, they want more of God's Word. They prepare themselves for it. Think about how they prepared. Think about how you can be prepared for worship They come, and after hearing God's Word being read extensively, they realize from His law, they realize, oh, God, this is, you know, they rehearse God's story, that God has a right to judge us, and God is faithful to justice and mercy, that He's the God of the nevertheless. And when I know that He's the God of the nevertheless, then I don't have to feel like I have to preserve myself and my own name by shifting the blame. I can own my sin because I can trust this God to whom I am, I am confessing to. I want to tell you, that would save a lot of marriages. It would save a lot of human relationships. If we would, when we catch ourselves shifting the blame, stop and say, you know, I have a fault in this. And I can tell God about it because I can trust Him. He's the God of the nevertheless. 
I don't have to put it all on Mike Wells. Okay, you can put it on Mike Wells, but I, you don't have to, okay? I don't have to shift the blame. I can actually own Mike Wells. So as I end, I just want you to remember, and I hope you it rings in your ears, the God of the nevertheless is the one you can trust. Let's pray. Thank you so much, our Lord and our God, that we can come to you, even with resigned petitions, and know that you, the God of the nevertheless, are trustworthy, utterly trustworthy. Forgive us, Lord, when we have listened to the serpent who makes us and wants us to doubt your trustworthiness. Lord, we confess to you that there have been times, and some have already come back to our minds even as we talk about it, there have been times when we have been blame-shifting. Forgive us for doing that. Help us to own our sins. To be mature, to lay them before you, trusting you. And Lord, I pray that you would be with all of us, that even this week we would be in bits and pieces all the way until next Sunday, preparing ourselves to come into your assembly, to hear your word, to worship. In Jesus' name.